Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, you'll be pleased to hear that this morning John's remembered to bring his wife with him. <laughs> so welcome, Petra. We didn't need to have a pastoral conversation after all. Oh, that's good. Um, we're we're going to uh, have a sort of slightly shorter talk, I think, today, and uh, go back to some worship at the end. And uh, good song choices this morning, guys. Thank you. Um, and over these next uh, four weeks, we're taking a break from our series. You know, we've been going through the book of Mark, and in fact, we're we're going to put, press pause on that now for a little while. Probably won't return to that till the autumn. Don't want to really think that far ahead. We don't want to wish summer away, but uh, we'll probably return to Mark in the autumn. And uh, we're going to uh, spend the next four weeks just as we sort of, if you like, straddle Easter. So Easter in the middle this week and then the following week, looking at redemption. And uh, so if you're... If you're if you're quick on the uptake, if you'll notice if I said we've got four weeks of that, that takes us into the weekend away, and actually that's going to be the theme of the whole of our weekend away together, is redemption. And uh, redemption is one of those words that sounds like it, it's rich, doesn't it? It feels like, oh, redemption is like a, a rich-sounding word, but it's Probably not a word that we would use in everyday language in 21st century London. And so one of the things that we want to do over these next few weeks is just unpack redemption. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the word redemption is used quite a lot. And there are at least three, if not four, different words for it because there are different types and styles of redemption in the Old Testament. But it's a word that we don't really use at all. We just feel holy when we, when we say it or when we sing it. But we sing about redemption. We sing about the Redeemer a lot, don't we? But actually, we're not, are we sure what it actually is, really means? And so we're going to just spend a few weeks, these four weeks, just investigating that a little bit. Because redemption is one of the great truths of the Christian faith, and it's one of the great truths of the Bible. So, well, why is it important to know the truths of the Bible, the truths of the Christian faith? Is it just so that um, we can build up knowledge? Well, the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. So actually, just building up knowledge is, is, not, is not the best reason to look at a biblical truth and understand it. Is it so that we can argue the case when we're with, with others. Well, partly it might be that, but actually it was really interesting last Sunday when uh, Martin and Maureen, do you remember if you were here, they just shared that they'd been away for a weekend in York or a few days in York, and there'd just been these amazing opportunities that they'd had to share their faith with people. I very much doubt whether they needed to make an argument about redemption. Okay, they probably just talked about faith in a very personal way, what this means for me. So actually, it's not necessarily that we need to know the truths of the Bible so that we can argue the case. There are some people who do that. They're called apologists, and 
praise God for them, they're very clever, much cleverer than me, and, and, and they can stand up with scientists like uh, Richard Dawkins and argue the case, and that's good. But, but for most of us, probably we don't need to know the truths of the Bible so we can argue the case with the non-Christian. We don't need to know the truths of the Bible so that we can build up knowledge. Why do we need to know the truths of the Bible? Jesus is really clear on it. He says to his disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you know, that's why we preach on Sundays. That's why we gather together. It's because there's a reality in the truth of the gospel that sets us free. Jesus says, if you know the truth, actually it's going to set you free. That's one of the things that I'm really looking forward to in our weekend away, as we get this team from another church who are just going to come and speak and share and pray for us and minister and lead us in worship, and they're going to bring truth to us. And for some of us, it's just going to set us free. Because Jesus says, I've come to bring you the truth, and this truth is not just about building up your knowledge so you can argue the case, it's so that it will set you free. And I need to hear that truth often. Do you know, I can so easily forget it, and suddenly I find like I'm chained up again, and Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. He says, okay, you want to be transformed? This faith, this Christian faith is about transformation. And to be transformed, you need your mind renewed constantly by the truth that's going to set you free. And redemption is one of those great truths. So it's worth us investing a bit of time and a few weeks in it. And it's worth us trying our best to listen to the preach, however mediocre the preacher might be. Because in tucked in some of that incoherent rambling, there's going to be some truth. And if I get it, Jesus says, I've brought the truth to you to set you free. So it's good to look at the truth of the Bible. It's good to look at redemption. But do you know what? You can't understand the truth of the gospel and the truth of the Bible unless you have the Holy Spirit actively opening it up for you. And that comes through prayer. You know, I've heard people say, I read the Bible, I don't really understand it, and I completely, I completely get that. But the Bible also talks about truths needing to be spiritually discerned. In other words, the Holy Spirit has to open it up for us. And how does he do that? Through prayer. And Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you'll know the hope to which you've been called, the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints and the incomparably great power that's for us who believe. I pray that the eyes of your heart are going to be enlightened. So, if we want to grasp the truth that sets us free, we pray and ask God, reveal it to me. Not just truth that builds up my knowledge bank, helps me to argue the toss with other people, truth that sets me free. So shall we ask God to do that for us over these next few weeks when we look at redemption? Let's pray.
Oh, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you did not come just to teach us some moral code to live by, but you came so that we might be set free by the truth. And that truth is discerned by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And you said, Lord Jesus, that if anyone wants the Holy Spirit, they should ask the Father who doesn't give scorpions for bread or stones for eggs. <laughs> but like a loving father gives what, what children his children ask for. So we're asking for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that Paul describes the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. And so we ask you, Father, for a big dose of the Holy Spirit so that we might know you better, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, so that we will know the hope to which we've been called, our glorious riches in the inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. So, as we come to your word, we humbly ask, will you enlighten us, and will you continue that process of bringing us freedom and liberty in the truth of the gospel? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to look at um, a few verses from the book of Job. And uh, it's not a book that you might normally associate with Jesus, but actually there is, do you know, when you read the Old Testament, it's wonderful because every now and then you come across this, these verses in the Old Testament and you think, that's about Jesus. How could he have known that? This guy who wrote this was lived thousands of years before Jesus, but he's just described Jesus. How does that happen? And throughout the Old Testament, you see all these indications, all these arrows pointing towards Jesus. And right in the middle of the book of Job, right in the middle of all the muck and the bullets of Job, which is about suffering, there just comes this moment of revelation to this man Job. And uh, so we're going to look at these, just these few verses from the book of Job. And it's Job chapter 19, and it's verses 23 through to 27. And Job writes this, right in the middle of a chapter where he is doubting the goodness of God, okay? And not understanding why he's going through suffering. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But this is where these words come. Right in the middle of a chapter that surrounds these words with, Why, God, I don't understand. And then comes this. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. So suddenly he's building up to his theme here. He's suddenly something's come. He's, something's been revealed. And, oh, this needs to be written down. Well, Job, it was. Yeah? For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet... In my flesh, in my body, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. 
and my eyes shall behold my eyes and not another. And then he goes back to saying, woe is me. <laughs> it's funny, you read this, it's just like this, this little pocket of, of light in the middle of his suffering and his questions. Why, God? I thought you were just, and yet you're doing all this stuff to me. So if you don't know the book of Job, let's give you a very quick synopsis of it. It opens, the book of Job opens, with like a curtain being drawn back, and we see and hear this conversation between God and Satan in the heavenly realm. And God says to Satan, look at my servant Job. He's blameless and upright, and he loves me. And Satan says to God, yeah, well, of course he does, because you bless him. Take away your blessing, and he'll curse you. And then God gives Satan permission to afflict Job. But he keeps him on a leash. Do you know what? That's really encouraging for us, isn't it? Yeah? Satan is kept on a leash, on a lead. So what God says to Satan is, you can go this far, but you're not to touch his life. You're not to touch him, okay? And Satan does go a fair old way. And we know, if you know the book of Job, Job then loses all his children, he loses all his wealth, and still he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan goes back to God and says to him, okay, well, if you let me afflict him, okay, I've taken everything away, yes, okay, he still worships, but let me touch him now. Let me afflict him. And so God allows that, but says, but you're not to take his life. He's still on a leash. He's still on a leash, but God allows it. Okay, you can afflict him, but you're not to take his life. And then the Bible says that poor Job is covered with boils from head to foot. I mean, that must have been miserable. He sat in the dust. He tried to scrape them off with a broken pot. I mean, that's just the depths of misery, isn't it? Okay. And then the rest of Job is basically made up of three friends who come ostensibly to comfort Job, but they don't do a very good job at comforting him. And basically what they say to Job is, well, clearly, if God's doing this to you, you've done something wrong. You deserve what you're getting, Job. And they start off very gently with him, and Job just keeps on saying, no, I don't deserve what I've, what I've got. I've been blameless. And actually, God says at the start of the chapter, look at my servant Job. He's blameless. He's upright. Actually, Job is right. He doesn't seem to deserve what he's getting. And the friends then, they really go for him. And they say, no, if you're being punished, this is punishment from the Lord. You need to turn and you need to repent because somewhere down the line... You've offended him, you've been wicked and you've been evil and you need to repent. And if you repent, he'll take all this away and he'll bless you. But actually that wasn't the truth. And at the end of Job, actually his friends get a real tongue licking from God. And it's Job who has to pray for their forgiveness at the end. Because Job is seen as righteous, but the friend's counsel is not helpful. And it's right in the middle of this argument. And you know... The Bible says at the start of Job that Job was blameless and upright, 
But as the book goes on, you see that actually he's, he's not perfect. He does blame God for this. He does say, God, you're not just doing this to me, and I don't understand it. And he's, he's, he's not always then blameless in the way that he responds to God. And God has to take him to account at the end of the book, although he still affirms him and says he's done well. But he has to take him to account a bit at the end of the book. And it's right in the middle of all this arguing and confusion and misunderstanding that Job has this revelation. For I know that my Redeemer lives. I know. I'm certain. Do you know what? I found that really encouraging because I don't know about you, You can sometimes think ahead to the possibilities of life when life is going to throw you a curved ball. Ben and Emma, you're in the middle of one, aren't you, right at the moment? You can think yourself ahead and you can think, will I cope? Do you know, one of the things that Ben said to me when uh, he first became ill, and we were talking about what he wanted me to pray for him for, he said, pray that my faith won't fail. What a great thing to to ask for. And that is a good thing to ask for. That your faith won't fail. Because when you're facing the unknown and an uncertainty in the future, and you think to yourself, will I cope? Will, will Will my faith fail? Will I still think he's my redeemer? This encourages me because right in the middle of Job's suffering, suddenly there's this vision Yes, my Redeemer lives. It's like God says, yes, your faith won't fail. I will be there. I will bring supernatural, spiritual revelation to you right when you're in the middle of it. So yeah, if you pray, God, don't let my faith fail, I'll be with you. Do you know what else? Even if you forget to pray that, there's someone else who prays that for you. It's the Lord Jesus who prays that for you. He intercedes on your behalf. And he prayed those exact words for Peter just before Peter said, oh, I never knew that guy, Jesus. No, I never knew him. No, I'm telling you, I never knew him. Just before he denies him, we're coming up to that part of the story, aren't we, as we approach Good Friday. The Good Friday when Peter says, I never knew him. And what does Jesus say before that? This will be so encouraging to Peter later on. He says, oh, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. Why? That your faith will not fail. I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. Do you know, Peter did fail. He did fail in that moment when he denied the Lord. He failed. But Jesus had prayed that his long-term faith would not fail. And it didn't. And he did turn and strengthen his brothers because he was the rock on which Christ built the church. On this rock will I build my church, he says of Peter. Do you know, when you are in and I are in the middle of it, And sometimes we're not in the middle of it right now, but we can think, how will I be when that happens? How will it be for me when I lose him, her? How will it be for me when, if the job goes belly up, how will it be for me 
if that happens, we can be sure that God will bring revelation that he's with us at that moment. You don't get the grace for the future until you need it. You don't get it now. You get the grace for now. Okay? When the future comes, then the grace for the future comes too. In the middle of his suffering, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. So let's look at this word, Redeemer. And the the word that's used for Redeemer in this context is one that's... um, a, a longer word for it would be something called kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. And this was a system that God set up with the Israelites where he said, okay, if, if anyone in, in a family goes into debt, and in those days, if you went into debt to somebody and you couldn't pay back the debt, you became their slave. And so you become their slave You don't get any money for that. So the possibility of you ever being able to be released from slavery is remote. Your family go into slavery. You can't provide for them anymore. If you're in debt, you become that person's slave. And what God put in place through Moses for the people of Israel was, if that happens, then within the wider family, there's going to be someone who's going to be called your kinsman redeemer. And that person will be the one who will come and pay the price of your debt so that you are released from slavery. Or a kinsman redeemer might have been somebody who, if um, someone in the family died and left a widow, that the kinsman redeemer would take responsibility for caring for that widow and the family. They might even marry them. Okay, they might even marry the widow so that the family line of the, of the husband who died could be carried on and so that that widow and the family could be cared for. The kinsman redeemer was someone actually really close. Another translation of it is next of kin. You know, we put that down, don't we? If you're at work, when you get a new job, in case you, you know, f- fall under the bus and they work have to find out who to ring, you have to put down a, a next of kin. It's the same thing, the next of kin. And what Job is saying here is, I know that my Redeemer is like my next of kin. Jesus is like our next of kin. Do you know what? That's what it's like, that he says, okay, when, when they, once they belong to me, do you know what? My name is the one on the list where it says next of kin. And that means anything they need, you come to me for, Okay. Anything you, anything you need, you come to me for. I'm, I'm your next of kin. I'm close. I'm not, I'm not a redeemer who's somehow removed. I'm like a next of kin. There's a... You know, some people will say that stories like fairy tales, everything like that, every story that's ever been written somehow or other points towards, towards Jesus. That's what some people will say. Fairy tales, you think about a fairy tale, there's a good and evil and there's a hero and they live happily ever after. Oh, it's a bit like the Bible, isn't it? And so some people will say that actually everything points towards Jesus. And so when Pete talked this morning about, oh God, it just helps me to worship you. Everything points towards Jesus. The sun points towards Jesus. Everything points towards that. Everything is part of God's story. And uh, 
And sometimes stories can be helpful. So do you know the story of Oliver Twist? Yes, okay, few people know the story of Oliver Twist. Okay, there was a great film made back in the 1940s of the story of Oliver Twist by a guy called David Lean, okay? It's an old film. It's a good film. It's one of those ones where if you're feeling a bit poorly in an afternoon, you know, you just, and it's raining outside, you, you, you sit down and you put this on, okay? It's good. And um, so the old black and white film made in the 1940s. And of course, the story is that Oliver Twist is an orphan. His mother is uh, he's an illegitimate child. His mother wasn't married, so there's lots of shame attached to that. And the mother is in poverty. She gets put in what's called the workhouse. Which they were horrible in the Victorian times. They were where, where orphans and people who had no money were looked after, if you could call it being looked after. Uh, most people died in there, as far as I can tell. And uh, in this story, she gives birth in the workhouse, and he gets born in, into just being in poverty. Okay, Oliver Twist, all right? And, uh, and one day, he goes up and he has the audacity to say, please, sir, can I have some more? Okay, ask for some more food. And uh, this was not a good thing to do in the workhouse. And so he's beaten, and, uh, and eventually, after lots of things happen to him, he, he runs away and he goes to London. Oh, I think there's another picture coming up. And he meets, so here we go, this is again from this film. He meets this character here who's called the Artful Dodger, okay? And basically, the Artful Dodger and this little team of friends and this guy who runs this little team of friends, they're pickpockets, they're thieves, okay? And Oliver gets caught up. You see the picture at the bottom there where the Artful Dodger's there saying, oh, I know a nice old gentleman. Come, he'll look after you. Come back with me. And Oliver gets caught up in this criminal world, okay? He's, so things are not going great for him. He's an orphan, he's got no money, he's got no parents, he has no family, no one to call his own. And these guys say, well, we'll sort of adopt you, but actually there's going to be a price to pay. We'll adopt you, but th here's the price. You're, you're going you're to become a criminal for us. That's what you're going to do. And so he gets caught up in this. And uh, next one, Bill. And, it's, and he says, it's not nice. So... Uh, this guy called Bill Sykes, who takes him out on a job and tells him, don't you dare. And Oliver's got a bit of a conscience, but mm, he's going he's gonna to get it if he doesn't do what he's told. And eventually, um, he gets caught, and the, the artful dodger has stolen a handkerchief from a rich gentleman, and Oliver is standing close by. And the artful dodger's very clever, because he just weaves his way out the gentleman turns round, realises that his handkerchief had been stolen. I mean, handkerchief's been stolen. And he sees Oliver and shouts, stop, thief! And so everybody runs after Oliver. Oliver runs to... And uh, he gets caught. And he gets taken to court. And in the court, the man from whom the handkerchief was stolen is in the witness stand. So there he is at the bottom. His name is Mr. Brownlow. He's in the witness stand, and Oliver is in the accused stand there. And the judge says, is this, is this the child? And Mr. Brownlow says, well, well, I think he was. It was a bit difficult. And the judge then starts to really push him. Look, was he or wasn't he? And Mr. Brownlow says, well, I think he was. I, he looked like he was. He ran away. And then Oliver is sent down for it. But Mr. Brownlow, you can tell by his face, can't you? Mr. Brownlow just 
his heart is touched by this child. And so he searches him out. And he searches him out and he pays the debt for Oliver to come out of prison. And not only does he pay the debt for him to come out of prison, but he takes him in. And he adopts him. And they snatch him back. The baddies snatch him back at one point. And Mr. Brownlow has to go out again and find him. But he adopts him. Suddenly, this child, he's paid the debt for him in prison. You know, it sounds like Charles Dickens could have been a Christian, doesn't it? He wasn't. Um, But it's almost like a redemption story, isn't it? This is a story of redemption. This child, who had nothing to do with this man touches this man's heart. He goes and pursues him. He pays the debt for him to be released. Even though, as far as he knows, he'd just been the one who'd robbed him. He pays the debt for him. But then he doesn't just pay the debt and say, son, you're free. He adopts him. What does that mean? That means actually that Oliver is completely safe now. He's never had family before. Suddenly he's adopted. Not only is he adopted, but when Mr. Brownlow dies, because he's adopted, he will inherit all his fortune. An orphan with nothing inherits a fortune and is adopted and finds a family. It's a great story of redemption, isn't it? That's what redemption is. That's what a kinsman redeemer does. And Job is saying... I know, suddenly I know, I have someone like that. I have a kinsman redeemer. Suddenly I know it. Now what else does he say? Job says, I know that my redeemer lives and that he will stand on the earth. Wow, thousands of years before Jesus is born... Job just gets this sense that there's a redeemer in heaven for him and that one day he's going to stand on the earth. He has this revelation, oh my goodness. And do you know what? Jesus is going to stand on the earth again. And when we look at the earth as it is now and we hear about things that are grievous and painful and awful and we read of wars and injustice and we think, God, how long? A bit like Job thought. How long, God, will this keep happening? And he has this vision of a redeemer who will stand on the earth. And we have the same. You know, when we are anxious, discouraged, confused, because why, oh God, do you still allow this to happen? Why Syria? Why Westminster Bridge? Why? And we have this God who says, yeah, but one day I'll stand upon the earth. I'm coming back to make it all right again. I'll stand on the earth. And then Job says, and I know that in my flesh, though my flesh will fade away, though I will die, in my flesh I will see God. Now that doesn't sound that significant to us, except that in, back in Job's day, People didn't always believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that you were in life after death. 
And in fact, if you read the earlier chapters in Job's book, he just talks about the fact that when he goes into the grave, that's going to be it. Actually, Job didn't believe at the start of the book of Job in life after death. He thought, this is it. This is miserable. Thanks, God. That's my lot. That's what he thought. But as the book goes on, and gradually, through his suffering, God reveals things to Job about himself. Job suddenly has this sense and this vision that, oh, no, I know. Actually, I'm, I'm going to see God in my flesh. I, 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 I'm, this life is not all there is. Suddenly, hope is rekindled in him because if this life was all there was for Job, then he might as well curse God and die. The Apostle Paul says, if in this life only we have hope, we of all people are to be more than pitied. But suddenly Job has this revelation. Oh, it's not just this life. Oh, I'm going to see him. Oh, he's going to stand upon the earth. He's going to make all things right, and I'm going to see him. Oh, my goodness, this life is not all there is. Oh, there's hope. Oh, my goodness. It's like this moment of revelation for, for Job he'd never had before. That's who Jesus is for us. He gives us certainty that he's our redeemer. He adopts us, pays the price for us, says, I'm now your next of kin. On that form where it says next of kin, it's my name's on there. I'm your next of kin now. You come to me for everything you need. I'm your next of kin. And not only am I next to your next of kin, do you know what? I know this world's a mess. I know you get caught up with this mess sometimes. But one day I'm going to stand on this earth and every knee will bow. And every knee will bow. And you know what? Not just that, but one day you'll be with me too. Because death's not going to be the end for you. Job has this amazing, wonderful picture of Jesus as Redeemer. And that is the Redeemer who we worship, and that is the Redeemer who you can come to as your next of kin. And that is the Redeemer who you can hold on to when life throws you a, a ball that you were not expecting. It's one who has written your name in his hands. Oh, they're one of mine. You can't touch him. You know what? He says the same to Satan about you. Yeah, thus far and no further. I'll finish with this. A friend of mine uh, played for his father's funeral about a few years ago now. And uh, this was a family who uh, we'd grown up together in the church when I was young, really young. And uh, the dad had died quite young. He'd had a massive stroke. And I remember my friend saying to me, so he'd had a stroke, couldn't really talk much, was in hospital towards the end of his life, and uh, my friend said that uh, there was one day when the family were coming in to visit and uh, this guy called Richard, he spotted them coming in at the end of the ward and he shouted down the ward, I know that my Redeemer lives. He shouted it down the ward. I know that my Redeemer lives. I don't know whether he could say anything else. 
And these words have brought comfort to Christians down the centuries. And at Richard's point, when he needed to know that truth most, he knew it and declared it. And when we need to know that truth most, we too will know it and we will declare it. Let's worship. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.